Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Charles Clark and Michael Hoffman from Brasserie 19 coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. We follow him on Instagram at FulmerHOU. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Before we dive into the news of the week, I thought I would give you an opportunity to mention the 2022 Houston Barbecue Festival because it's coming up next month. So why don't you just give the people like the two minute version of kind of what it is and how they can get tickets. Absolutely. Appreciate that. So on Sunday, April 3rd, Houston Barbecue Festival returns. We'll be at the Humble Civic Center. You can get your tickets at HOUBBQ.com. That's HOUBBQ.com. Um, we have just a few VIP tickets left. Uh, that gets you early entry at noon. Uh, and then the general mission comes in at one o'clock. We'll run to about four o'clock. There's uh, over 25 Houston area barbecue joints. You pay one fee, you come in, you get as much as you want. You get samples from all the places, as much as you want. Yeah, fold your arms and tell me you're going to crush us. Go ahead. We're ready for you. Um, The great thing is that Houston is so spread out, and you're getting barbecue from Corkscrew in Spring, Tejas and Tomball, Killens down in Pearland, you know, uh, Truth Barbecue here in Central Area. So you're getting barbecue from all over. It's a chance to really sample what Houston barbecue is all about in one place. Right. And and I will say there's a there's a kind of a fun aspect of this where because all the barbecue restaurants are together, they don't skimp, right? Everybody wants to have the best looking dish on Instagram that night. And so they really put their best foot forward for this. Yeah, they really do. And they all, you know, they all do a great version of the quote unquote Texas Trinity brisket, ribs and sausage. But, they'll, you know, part of what Houston barbecue is about, you can almost say it's a there's a Houston style now, if you will, uh, is that this, you know, there's variations and these varieties of different interpretations on how to smoke proteins and how you do that, you know, and it's uh, it's really interesting. It's really exciting. And it's going to be uh, a great day. Yeah, no, I am looking forward to it. So with that, let us dive into the news of the week. Topic number one, the James Beard Foundation announced their semifinalists for the 2022 James Beard Awards. Houston is well represented. Let me just briefly go through the nominations. Chris Williams of Lucille's for Outstanding Restaurateur, Pier 6 Seafood for Best New Restaurant, Ruben Ortega for Outstanding Pastry Chef, Hugo's for Outstanding Hospitality, Julep for Outstanding Bar Program, and then seven strong nominations for Best Chef Texas, Alex Young of Fat Eatery, Aaron Bludorn of Bludorn, Sylvia Casares of Sylvia's Enchilada Kitchen, Christine Ha and Tony Nguyen of Sin Chow, Kui Wong of Blood Brothers Barbecue, Kaiser Lashkari of Himalaya, and Felipe Riccio of March. That is a lot to go over, especially quickly, especially in audio. But Michael, let me throw it to you. What do you think of these nominations, particularly Best Chef Texas? Did the Beard Foundation get it right? Well, it's important to note that Texas now has its own designation within the Beard Awards. We were folded into sort of Southwest and I think 
Texas got is just so big that has so much to offer that it really made sense to have their own. So the Beard Foundation really kind of got it together by doing that. Um, you know, of course, there's with any awards, there's always going to be uh, some omissions, something that maybe you don't care about. Or I mean, I'm surprised that Crawfish and Noodles isn't back on their list. Uh, I guess Anvil was a perennial nominee. Um, and then when they just suddenly stopped doing it in 2020, where they just said, we're not going to do it until we get our act together. I'm surprised to not see them back. Julep, you know, Alberto, she, she, uh, Alba does a fantastic job at Julep, the whole team there, and they are totally worthy of the nomination. They would be worthy of the win, but I am surprised to see Anvil not back on there. Yeah. I, I think, you know, as you, as you have alluded to the Beard Foundation opted not to give its awards in 2020, even though it had started the process, they, they took a year off in 2021. They had this whole audit where they reassessed, you know, what kind of restaurants they want to recognize, what the voting body should be, you know, what the criteria for winning should be, all these, all these things, you know, and they've resolved to be more diverse, more inclusive. You know, my, my joking line is that they, they want to get beyond sort of white guys with tasting menus and get to uh, a more diverse, you know, from an economic perspective, from uh, the background of the people who, who own and run the restaurants, like, uh, you know, so that's, that's the goal. And, and we certainly see that with this, with this group of nominees, but, but you are, I think that's a point well made is that, you know, somehow in the shuffling of, we want to elevate some new people. We, we lost a couple people, right. Especially, you know, Anita Jaisinghani of Pondicherry, who had been a multiple time nominee yeah. and Trong Nguyen of Crawfish and Noodle, who had been nominated several times in the past. And, and neither one of them make the semifinalist list this time, uh, which is kind of a bummer just because, you know, they're both obviously very accomplished and very worthy. But, you know, I think even more than that, I'm, I'm excited for people like, you know, Alex I. Young of Fat Eatery and, and, and all the other nominees just because it, it does feel a little more contemporary. It does feel... Like they're they're trying really, especially in Texas, to to embody these new principles that the foundation has articulated. Yeah, I, I think you know, speaking on the barbecue front, when Aaron Franklin won, I mean that kind of opened the door for what barbecue was. Louis Mueller had been given an honorary uh, James Beard Award. I think it. 2006. Yeah, it's called the American Classics Award. Yeah, two thousand six, and well deserved to be sure, um, but in a in a competitive category. Um, Aaron winning and then, of course, Rodney Scott winning then, you know, said, hey, we recognize this as this is legitimate, you know, and it's not that barbecue was anything less than that. But to have it in there really, uh, I think, is, is deserving and proper. And they're seeing not just how creative these guys are, but how hard they work and 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 how worthy they are. Uh, you know, Esau and 2M, you know, Ernest, it's like Burnt Bean is just like they're like a, just a comet exploding in the sky. They're just every, you know, uh, and, and deserving of all the plaudits of what they're doing in Seguin. What Damian Brockway is doing at Distant Relatives, of course, is very interesting, particularly from like a narrative standpoint and, and how he's honoring the past and, and stepping away from the fine dining atmosphere. And then let's you know the Blue Brothers, Blood Brothers is, is no new story in what Key does. They, they haven't rested on their laurels at all. And they continue to really to do the right, the, the regular things day in and day out, but still explore their own creativity. And I'm really excited uh, to see them on there also. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about Burn Beanco, obviously being a rocket, but but Royal Brothers too, right? I mean, they've gotten just a, an absolute boatload of regional and national recognition since they made the transition from sort of pop up to brick and mortar restaurant. You know, they have the the food hall location in Vegas now, and and you know, just what they're doing, blending those Vietnamese and other Asian flavors with like traditional Texas barbecue was so exciting. And, and, you know, I watched, uh, you know, Eater, Eater National came and made a video with, uh, with Key where he showed them how he kind of goes through and makes all these different dishes that are uh, signatures. And that's just the latest, uh, you know, they were on that recent Samantha Brown episode on PBS and, and on and on. And so for, for them to get this kind of recognition, I think just shows how far they've come really. Cause I, I mean, I remember going to uh, pop-ups at, you know, bars on Washington Avenue and being like, this food is interesting, but it, it's really, really come into its own over the last couple of years. Yeah, that Eater piece was well done. Um, you know, it, it's always interesting to me that they kind of, they weren't looking to be a restaurant. They weren't looking to go brick and mortar. They were really enjoying things, doing the little pop-up and having their regular jobs. Uh, and, you know, we, the public just said, we want more. And and they responded and they really stepped up. Absolutely. And, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the, the national awards are, are sort of tricky, but, uh, you know, certainly for Ruben Ortega, I mean, you know, he's nominated, normally he's nominated for Sochi, but, you know, if you've been to any of the H-Town group restaurants, whether that's Hugo's or Caracol or, or Herbe even, you know, you know how good the pastry programs are and how much fun Ruben has uh, creating those desserts. And so long overdue for him. And again, I, I thought, you know, Pier 6 is as a nominee for Best New Restaurant in the Country because it is it is sort of casual. It is sort of accessible. It is a little bit out of the way down there in San Leon. And so, uh, you know, nice to see them getting that kind of attention. Yeah, really kind of embracing Gulf, Gulf seafood culture. I mean, that's really what it is. This isn't just like, you know, okay, we've got oysters on the half shell and some fried seafood. Um at the same time, it's, you know, it's not a 15 course tasting menu. Like, you know, you alluded to is what we has dominated in the past. Uh, so it was, I was surprised to see it, but what Joe Cervantes does there is great. And uh, I'm excited for him. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, Chris Williams had such an incredible 2020 for Lucille's and, and starting the, uh, you know, the Lucille's uh, 1813 or 1913 uh, nonprofit to feed people around town and, you know, they've got a big year coming up. They're going to open late August. Uh, Chris has partnered with Don Burrell on that. And so, you know, just bigger and better things for him. But again, just someone who who really like kind of rode this wave of interest and in, has really capitalized on it. Well, and also as soon as COVID hit, how quickly they responded, you know, by saying, hey, we want to we want to help out. We want to help out people, period. We want to help out people in the community, in the restaurant community and doing things for the Houston bartenders. You know, it was really it was almost like there wasn't even a second. thought. It's almost like they were ready to go. And it was impressive to see the reaction of the public and how well they responded to it. Well, I guess any other uh, any other thoughts on these nominees before we move on? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm reasonably pleased, I'd say, of the. The best chef Texas nominees I've had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six on this podcast. I haven't had uh, I had Christine without Tony, and I haven't had Sylvia on, but everybody else has been on, so I feel feel pretty good about that. Yeah, Sylvia was a bit of a surprise for Sylvia's enchilada house. She's just a wonderful woman. The cooking classes she does, 
her, you know, commitment to culture, <laughs> her enchiladas her are fantastic. You know, her mole is great. So well, I, I remember going there for brunch with you several years ago and she was talking to us and like, oh, these pancakes are incredible. She's like, yeah, I, I had to take a half a cup of flour out of the recipe. That made all the difference. And it was just so mind blowing to me that she was so exacting and detail oriented that, you know, a, I wouldn't necessarily think a half a cup of flour would make that much difference, but, but that's, but that's her approach to everything she does. Yeah. And the service with Hugo's as with all of like with the Carol Cole group, I mean, a short story that to me was really emblematic of the quality of their service and their training was I took my father to Carol Cole on father's day. So they've been open the whole week. They had done, you know, probably four or 500 covers easily for brunch. We were there for dinner. They were doing another four or 500. So the staff just had to be absolutely beat, you know, just exhausted. And you know what? It, they, it didn't show at all. The, the quality of the food, the service was so on point. It was professional. It was seamless, but it was warm and friendly. And, and they did that all at the end of a week when, you know, you're kind of at your wits end where you just kind of want to get through it. Uh, you know, I've been there and I was really impressed by that. And that just to me shows how that whole company, that whole restaurant group operates. And uh, so that nomination is quite deserving. No, absolutely. And, and Hugo's is the restaurant that's nominated. And, you know, the, the, the hospitality happens inside the restaurant, certainly. Uh, but the car wash that the valets provide for uh, 20 or 25 bucks, it's like the best car wash in town. And, <laughs> and so, never done it. No, no. Anyone, if you if you've never done it before, I say this to anybody, it is it is a hundred percent worth whatever they charge because it, it wow. And it's so nice to come out of your meal into a clean car. It's just it's like and a they're little, still doing that. Last I, admittedly, it's been a minute since I yeah I've yeah. eaten at Hugo's, but yeah, as far as I know, that's still part of the experience. That's awesome. All right, let us move on to topic number two. We have news from Post Houston the mixed-use venue that uh, took over the Barbara Jordan Post Office downtown. Uh, one of its most prominent tenants, Salt and Time, the Austin Butcher Shop, and its companion, Butcher's Burger, have closed. Uh, somewhat unexpected. I mean, this was certainly one of the, the most prominent uh, of the initial announcements of the, the tenants that were coming to the market and, and really showed the extent to which Post wanted to make a splash with, with some big names. But... Uh, I don't know, Michael, let me throw it to you. What do you think? Uh, are you surprised that this closed so quickly? Did you did you uh, experience either Salt and Time or the Butcher's Burger on your visits to Post Houston? I did. I did, in fact. And I, I visit Salt and Time when I'm in Austin. I've, I've taken a class there before. They did a whole hog class. That was fantastic. Uh, they're great guys, the whole team there. Um, you know, I it was a little awkward. I think they had like a cheeseburger listed, but it wasn't a cheeseburger. It was actually a veggie burger. But, you know, they had to. Well, every it was time a someone, piece of cheese. Yeah. So every time someone had to order it, they had to explain that. So that was a little awkward. Then they had a carving station, which was a separate transaction, even though they're right next to each other. And it was just kind of OK. And then, you know, they had, of course, the butcher, like you sell meat there. But I didn't get the idea that people in that environment were going to be, you know, hey, let's pick up a steak on the way home. It's like I'm kind of going there for lunch. Or I'm going there for dinner. I'm not going to keep a steak in my car. So that was like I didn't know if that would work. And, and it seemed like it didn't. I've heard some stories about how, you know, the lease was handled and all that. But we'll see how that fans out. So, I mean, food halls are a tough thing you know, especially in a COVID environment now. And I'm sure they did their best to bring in the best places 
with the most solid backgrounds. But, you know, you're, you're never going to be 100 percent. And this was one of those that didn't fall that fell to the wayside. Overall, though, I'm really impressed with that whole food hall, the, the design, uh, who they've chosen, the service I've gotten there. I mean, but the only thing I didn't really care for was the, the coffee place was you know kind of far away from everything else. But that's just me and my own sloth, you know. Well, <laughs> well, you made a couple of points, and let me let me just sort of build on that. The reason the coffee place is kind of far away from the rest of the food hall is because eventually there's going to be a co-working component at Post Houston, ah. and so that that co-working facility has not opened yet, and ah. and I suspect you know. Post isn't really saying why Salt and Time closed. Salt and Time isn't really saying why Salt and Time closed. But if I had to guess, this is just me speculating, but that that co-working component hasn't opened yet, made the market side of Salt and Time difficult because the idea was that, you know, you could be an office worker and you could pick up steaks or charcuterie or something and take it home with you. Uh, and that hasn't manifested yet. And so you know, they have all this infrastructure to facilitate that part of the business and probably not very many people availing themselves of it. And so, you know, I, I suspect that that played a part in why it didn't work out. Gotcha. But more broadly, I agree with you. I think overall the, the food at, at the post has been very good and, and we've had several good meals there, whether it's, you know, and Matt uh, Harris and I talked about this on a recent episode, but, you know, between Chopping Block and Gulf Strawman and Eastside King and uh, Soy Pinoy and some of these others, uh, there's a, there's a lot to like and, and, you know, more coming. So it's, uh, it's been a really interesting place to dine and, and it's a bummer because I, I thought that butcher's burger was really good. You know, we did our, our burger draft the last time you were on the show. That was one of my picks. Uh, was the butcher's burger and uh, I'm going to miss being able to eat it. Yeah. I'll be curious to see what goes in there. I mean, I'll continue to go to the post because there's still a few places that I haven't been to. Um, I've heard great stories about, you know, they're doing a little mini omakase now at Eastside King. Uh, that's very aggressively priced. I mean that in a good way. Um, you, I guess my only thing that I really decry is that it's, it's a, Pepsi-based environment. <laughs> that doesn't work for me. This is a Coca-Cola town as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and that's where my brand loyalty lies, but that's my own personal choices. So, you know, I, I share that sentiment and, and I was surprised that it was Pepsi and I've seen Pepsi a few places around town. I, I guess there's a, there's a very successful, very persuasive Pepsi rep floating around somewhere, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I find that a, to be a very, uh, confusing decision, but uh, all right, let us move on. Let's do uh, topic number three, Henderson and Kane. John and Veronica Avila's modern general store is opening a second location at the Houston farmer's market. This is the property at airline and 610 where Chris Shepard is open underbelly burger and wild oats. Crawfish noodle is coming there. You know, the market has been, transformed over the last couple of years, completely renovated. Michael, let me just ask you, what do you, do you, do you have thoughts about Henderson and Kane and, and do you think it's a good fit for the Houston farmer's market? Well, I mean, the, the, the farmer's market clear has been really transformed into something much more upscale. I mean, it was before I went there and, you know, there was nine to 15 places selling chili peppers, you know, we can get avocados. I got 
all this great produce at great prices. There was a good food, you know, some good taco trucks in the back. Uh, and that's how it was. And now you have these upscale restaurants, you know, let's, anybody who knows anything about the Heights is like, you know, it, it's, it's become very like teardowns are like $500,000 there now. Uh, so, you know, build it for the community. Um, Henderson and Kane isn't about like just being a little store that's got some goods. It's like they, they plug into the Houston community into the Texas community. So they have chef driven products that you're not going to find anywhere else of extremely high quality. John and Veronica have excellent palates and I go by the, the store probably once or twice a month as I'm in that area. And, you know, they, they were how they responded with COVID with the community was great. So I think this could fit very well, you know, given if there's foot traffic there, like are people going to, I have no idea how that dynamic is going to work out yet. Cause I haven't done that yet. But if they do get people who are willing to, Hey, let's go to underbelly and have a burger. Let's go look in this store. I think it fits perfectly for that, you know, for how they're recontextualizing and reimagining that environment and that place. Now, I think it fits really well. I agree. And, and, you know, it's significant. I think that, Henderson and Kane is going to take the building that was Canino's produce, which was the, the anchor tenant at that market for so long. And they're going to bring this, like, you know, these, all of these little local producers, these artists, food artisans that they've been working with at the, at the original location and, and give them a bigger platform and also kind of expand what they do. Right. I mean, they've, they've always done um, barbecue at Henderson and Kane. And so they'll have, they'll have that. And I think, you know, if you're creating a, a Houston food destination, you have to have barbecue. And so I think that part makes a lot of sense to me, but I, you know, I, I do think the market has, you know, a, a following an existing following of people who go to shop for, for produce. And I think that's only going to get bigger as, as more and more of these places open, but, but, you know, I, I was there on Sunday uh, at wild oats and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but, you know, it was a sunny day and, the market was bustling, you know, the parking lot was filling up. There were people walking around shopping. And, and I think in that kind of environment, when, you know, maybe a thousand people will walk through that market on any given day, that, that a place like Henderson and Kane is a really valuable addition. That's great. I'll be curious whether or not they're serving, you know, they sell, I guess it's 44 farms uh, meat at the, at the market, uh, at the, at their original location. Isn't there an RC ranch? Uh... Yes. The RC ranch butcher shop is right there. No, I, I talked to John Avila about that and he said they're, they're going to stay out of each other's way. Yeah. I thought there might be a no compete on that, or at least like a respectful thing going on. And John's one of those guys who's actually, you know, as good as his burger is on Thursday, he doesn't want to compete with Stanton's, you know, that's why he's not running it all the time, which to me is crazy because his burger is fantastic as is Stanton's. I think there's room enough for both, but that's the kind of mindset John has. He really wants to re- respect the other people around him and in the community because he wants to be part of the community. Uh, so I think that bodes well. Right. This is one of those kind of rising tide lifts all boats situation where they're, they're not going to step on each other's toes. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. Michael, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about wild oats. 
This is Chris Shepard and Nick Fine's Ode to Texas Cuisine. As I mentioned previously, it is located at the Houston Farmer's Market. You and I went there for dinner, and then I actually went back for, for brunch a couple of days later. But but let me let me throw it to you. What what were your kind of first impressions of of Wild Oats, you know, walking in, looking at the decor, kind of taking it in? The decor, I love the decor. I like the warmth of it, the high ceilings, the color. I mean, can you build a restaurant now and not have an open kitchen anymore? I, I you know, I'm old enough to remember when that was like a, a new kind of thing, uh, but now that's kind of like de rigueur. So I like the seating and their theme is one of like, they're really kind of embracing this kind of Texas ethos. And so, you know, the wood furniture, you know, the colored tile, it all flows very well with that. Um, so that being said, it, it feels like a very comfortable, warm place to be. Uh, the first thing that struck me as far as the food, I was, you know, we got the campuchana, which came out green, you know, and I always think of it as like a tomato based dish, you know, some usually like crab and shrimp and some tomato and onion, that kind of thing. Um, and this was green because it was done with tomatillas, which technically, you know, is a gooseberry, but you could call it a green tomato if you like in terms of flavor and texture. And visually, even though it was it was kind of I was a little bit, I guess, off put by it. I don't know if it's not the right word, just surprised by it. I thought it tasted delicious. The chips of it were great. The texture was wonderful. I would totally get it again. I mean, I agree with you. I, I thought the campuchana was was one of the standouts. I mean, you know, we started with a shot of chili, which I, I just think that's so smart that they, you can get your chili in cup, bowl, or shot form, which is, you know, a little sort of individual sized uh, taste of it, but fully dressed with the cheese and the jalapenos and everything. And, and I thought the chili was really outstanding. Yeah, me too. I'm used to not, I'm used to most chili at most restaurants really kind of falling short. And we all kind of have our our predilections about that. You know, uh, it's like what gumbo is in Louisiana. We kind of talked about this, that everyone has their own recipe and their own idea of it. But, man, I would totally get that chili again. It was just, it was flavorful. It was good texture to it. You know, it was great. Right. And then uh, one of the other dishes, right, they're, they're really proud of their wood-burning grill. And, and you know, Aaron Franklin designed that for them. And and it allows them to, to cook the food in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. But uh, they they roasted chickens and and admittedly roast chicken not not my go to dish at a restaurant but you know when you see it hanging over the grill like through the open kitchen it's kind of hard to resist and and I was really impressed by it I thought it was juicy I thought it was well seasoned it had some smoke flavor I I thought it was very delicious I, I cook chicken at home a lot and I, it's not one of those things I order chicken a handful of times a year tops and it was moist it was delicious it was cut they they sliced it well the 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 plate presentation was was good uh you know it was an accessible price point 36 a bit high for a chicken but you know what i would totally get it again so to say did i get a good value absolutely absolutely and then the king ranch casserole in the center that they made their own uh seemed appropriate now you know obviously we have to talk about the chicken fried steak uh, yeah. They are they are using Wagyu beef from RC Ranch, which, again, has that butcher shop basically next door to them. You know, it's an interesting preparation because instead of like a, you know, the saddle size chicken fried steak, they, they give you two smaller chicken fried steaks uh, and they serve it with some grilled green beans and uh, some buttery mashed potatoes. So let me just ask you, it's a forty two dollar chicken fried steak. Do you feel like it's a good value? First of all, 
I'll pay that much. I don't care if it's really good. I'll get that. Um, I don't need a chicken fried steak to be spilling out over the plate and have to take it home because let's face it, chicken fried steak that's re reheated is not good. You want to have what you have there. The, the texture of course was fantastic. It's, it's Wagyu, you know, there's no gristle in there. The flavor was, was there. It's just, it's soft. It's, it's, it's delicious. It works well with the gravy and the green beans. But what was missing for me is it just didn't have a crunch to it. It was just this sort of soft breading. There was no crunch at all. And to me, a chicken fried steak, you know, I want, I want a little bit of crunch to it. And uh, it was missing. So for that, uh, I, it, it falls short for me because of that. Yeah, no, I, I wanted that crispy outside crust. And I, I think, you know, the whole point of making two slightly smaller patties is that it, it's supposed to stay crispy. Uh, and I just think we got, I, I think that's, you know, a, a week old restaurant that's still getting its technique dialed in. But um, I, I will say I, w- I went back for the brunch and they, they have this incredible, like all you can eat spread. And then they bring you a couple little things from the kitchen. And, and one of them was uh, a small piece of chicken fried steak. And, and I will say, I thought it was better at brunch than it was when we had it for dinner. I'm encouraged by that because it, it does feel like they're maybe getting it dialed in a little bit. And then they also, they brought out this, this wonderful pretzel roll that was just like salty and warm and soft and chewy in all the right ways. And just was fantastic. Uh, but, but that brunch spread was really phenomenal. I mean, they do uh, a couple of cold salads. They do uh, like a breakfast empanada. They did uh, lamb taquitos and bacon sausage kolaches. Did you say lamb taquitos? Yes, I did. I'm in. Yeah, and and what's fun is and a, and a roast pig and some other stuff. And and the idea is that the the specific selections will rotate, but it gives you kind of some sense of of what they're capable of. And and you know, again, fifty five dollars, like not an inexpensive proposition because you know, essentially, if you have a bloody mary and one other cocktail, you're you're going to be at a hundred bucks after tax and tip, which is which is what I was at, but. You know, I felt good about it. You know, it's spendy, a little bit of a splurge, but like the quality of the food that was served at that brunch was excellent, like uniform, like from start to finish. And and I really enjoyed it. And so, you know, it's not going to be not every Sunday uh, for me or for anybody else, I suspect, but very delicious and, and really shows kind of what they're capable of with this, you know, Texas inspired menu, pulling from all these different culinary traditions. And, and you know, I mean, Maybe the, the Chris Shepard restaurant I've liked the most, uh, uh, certainly since UB Preserve opened. Well, this, the whole elevated Texas cuisine without making it fussy, you know, but let's, let's use the best quality ingredients. I mean, on there, there's the short rib fajitas, which go for $65. And I've talked to two people who've had it who said it was nothing short of fantastic. You know, so it comes back to a sort of a value proposition. Like if you walk in there and you kind of know what the menu looks like, then, okay, then then just roll with it. Don't, don't go crazy. And like, I can't wait to go back and try the crispy pork shank, you know, put Spetzel in any menu and I want to have it. And then, you know, you have Tootsie's name on a pork steak, you know, the pork shank and the pork steak. Uh, I totally want to try both those and, you know, shrimp and grits, uh, which is actually very reasonably priced at 26. You know, I got to go back and try that. So I'll, I'll totally be back, you know, and without hesitation. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's more things on the menu to try, right. The, you talked about those two, uh, those two pork dishes. There's a, a, a wood grilled steak on the menu that, that sounds really tasty and some more appetizers to try beyond that. So uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think this is a really nice addition to the kind of underbelly hospitality portfolio. And, and I look forward to my next meal there. Yeah. There's a kind of a little story behind each dish. It wasn't just like, well, you know, we sat at home or we sat around and had drinks and came up with this. It's like they've visited certain towns, certain things come from their childhood. And if you don't know the story, the dish is still going to be good. If you do, then it just makes it that much more enjoyable to see that they're kind of honoring a tradition as well as kind of putting their personality and stamp on that. And I, I can, I appreciate that. Absolutely. All right. I am going to say that does it for our restaurant of the week. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks for having me. I'll see you at the Houston Barbecue Festival. You will indeed. And I will be right back with Charles Clark and Michael Hoffman. I am joined this week by two of the men behind Brasserie 19. Gentlemen, let me introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. Charles Clark, owner. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to put out uh, some information about what's going on with me. Well, thanks for being here. And then Executive Chef Michael Hoffman, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, Great to see you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Yeah, Charles, let's get into it. I mean, you announced uh, a few weeks ago that you and your longtime business partner, Grant Cooper, had decided to go your separate ways. Uh, I mean, this is a a relationship that goes back more than 20 years. Do you just want to kind of dive in and and maybe talk a little bit about kind of how you you came to this decision? Grant and I, you know, we met back in 86, uh, 87, and he was a bartender and I was a waiter in Dallas. And we became good friends because he had lived in Europe with his dad and mom because his dad worked in Belgium on business. So he went to the American school there and he had a great taste for food. And, you know, we had a lot in common because I was waiting tables and he liked European style food, French, especially. So we just hit it off, became really good running buddies, drinking buddies, partying together and decided to maybe open a restaurant one day. So he moved to Austin with a girl and I headed to, to Houston to, to uh, pursue, uh, you know, maybe managing a restaurant or something. And I said, man, I'm going to go to culinary school. So I jumped into culinary school. and. Uh, and uh, graduated in 96 and, and uh, worked for a, a, a couple that had a little cafe called the Campos Cafe on the Parkway on D'Amico Street, right off there, right over there by Allen Parkway in Dunleavy. And so Grant um, moved back uh, to, to Houston. We're talking about doing a restaurant. So uh, he was going to work at the cafe with me and we could just try to raise the money. And so we started working there and about six months into it, I got a job offer to go to Spain, to Marbella, Southern Spain to work. And I took it in a, in a heartbeat and uh, it was not much money, nothing at all, really. And uh, so they flew me over there and I was working in a little cafe in the Southern Costa del Sol on the beach, pretty much above the bull ring and loving it. And, you know, hanging out on the beach when I'm not working and having a great time. But finally Grant and uh, a partner, uh, a third partner, they raised the money, the million I think a million two to do the restaurant. So they called me back over. 
So I came back over and we worked on Tosca Kitchen and Weimar and opened in 1998 of June, June 1998. And it was a, a big hit. And uh, but, you know, we had never done a partnership with three people and Grant and I trusted each other on a handshake. And so um, the other guy kind of, you know, we didn't fill out the paperwork correctly, didn't do our things. And so we ended up walking and uh, found out we really didn't own any of that restaurant. And so we uh, walked and had one investor, Ray Wheeler, and he put up the money to do a visa food and wine bar. So we opened a visa in 2001 of March, March 14, 2001. And Grant and I hit the ground running. And of course, Catalan and Copa, then the Visa Lounge, then Brasserie 19, and then Saltaire and uh, the Dunlib, you know, all kind of, we did a, a lot of different concepts and, uh, you know, some didn't work, some most did. Uh, the the, the air, you know, was our biggest failure. It was just a huge space, 8,000 square feet and beautiful space. We just, just couldn't make it work. So Grant and I, um, after Saltaire, we, I don't know if most people know what a buy sale is. A buy sale is when you, you form a contract between you. If something happens to me, he's not partners with my family. He buys out my family or if something happens to Grant. I buy out his family at a certain number, an agreed number, money number, but we could never come to that. It was just too expensive to do at the time that too many lawyers is just, it was, so we put it on hold. And so right before COVID, we talked about maybe uh, selling the company and then COVID hit. We said, no, we're not doing anything. Let's just get through this. So once we got through COVID, uh, a mutual friend just said, you know, you and Grant talk about selling company. Why don't you split it up? Because you guys both love the business. And I said, I never thought of that. So we have four concepts at that time, uh, Dunleavy, Brasserie, Copa, Gratify. So, of course, I wanted Brasserie and he wanted Copa and we didn't know about Gratify and, and Dunleavy. So it made sense for him to do Gratify and Copa. They're right next to each other. He lives a block from the property. And I live over here near River Oaks and I love brasserie. It's more my style of food and I, I like hands on and I have a great chef, Michael Hoffman, you know, in the kitchen. So I really wanted to go to the front of the house because I'd put so many years um, in the kitchen. I was just, you know, not burnt out or anything. I just wanted to be kind of like Tom Brady, leave at the top of my game when I could still cook and was still healthy. And that's what I wanted to do. And it was perfect timing because Adiza's 20-year lease ended two weeks before the pandemic hit. So I got out smelling like a rose, took a year off during pandemic, then came back and uh, Grant and I split up the company. It was finalized about three weeks ago. And, um, and Grant and I had several conversations. If we can make it through this without, you know, pointing fingers or, or being mad at each other or saying that belongs to me or silly employees, I go, we can, you know, make a name for us up in the city or keep our good reputations so that's what we did and we're still friends to this day and he wants to go in different markets i really don't i like to stay in houston i want to stay with brasserie maybe do something down the road another concept small but i do not want to go across the nation and grant wants to take copa and grow it in another cities dallas uh even colorado i think he, he wants to go and you know so i wish him a lot of luck and and uh, he's got partners, uh, Joseph Pratt, who's worked with us for years and years, is going to be a, a partner with him. And Mark Cantu, our director of operations, is also going to be a partner. So they have a good team in place. And I think they're opening Flora at the Dunleavy. Um, yeah, I think the, like in the next week or so. Yeah, I think maybe tomorrow, March 1st. But the deal is he got two concepts. I got two concepts. I got Dunleavy and Brasserie. 
then he came back to me and said, look, we really want Dunleavy for Flora. And uh, I go, okay, well, made me an offer. They made me an offer. And I said, that's fine. I'll take it. I gave them the keys of the Dunleavy. So they got Dunleavy, Copeland, Gratify, and I got Brasserie. And okay. Brasserie, we, we always refer to as the Golden Goose. So I'm super happy with Brasserie. All right. You, you've given me a lot to work with. Let me just back you up and okay. just explain, like, in, in slightly more detail why yeah. you wanted Brasserie 19, specifically. Brasserie 19 is the restaurant that built all the other restaurants out of cash flow. Brasserie is a beast of a restaurant. It, it throws off a lot of uh, uh, it profit. It makes a lot of money. And it's kind of a, an icon for the city. I mean, it, it's, it's been around 10 years. I've got another 10 years left on my lease. Uh, it's no debt, zero, zero debt, plenty of money, you know, cash in the bank for, you know, capital to work with. And it just, it made sense. And brasserie is my type of food. I love French food. I think French food is the sexiest food in the world. And you don't have to change it too much over the years. It's classic. It never goes out of style. As long as you put your little, you know, nice finishing touches, which Michael Huffman has a, a great, a great eye for, for detail. And uh, we have a new menu starting tomorrow. I'm excited about. And, um, and so that's why I wanted Brasserie. I just think it's a classic restaurant and uh, it's River Oak. That's my crowd. I've made a lot of friends over the last 20 years. And I know everybody that comes in the restaurant. I mean, yesterday, Sunday, uh, I was telling Michael this morning, I, we almost had a record Sunday one of the busiest Sundays we've had in, in, in five years. All right, Michael, let me bring you, you in on this because you, I know you, like, I think when I met you, you were working for Brian Caswell at, at Oxbow seven, which is maybe yes, one uh, of the yeah. great, like one of the great, like what ifs of Houston, Houston restaurants in the last five years. Like that. Yeah. That there's on. a, there's probably a great oral history article somewhere. If we could all get yeah. together and talk to you about it. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I know you started working with Charles at Abizin and now you're at B19. Maybe just talk about your background and, and what it's been like taking over at, at Brasserie and, and how that's been going. Yeah, well, I mean, I started 15 years ago in the city. I think my first job was uh, 2005 um, with Cafe Annie. Um, worked there for a long time and spent a lot of time in Houston. I worked at Mark's, was a sous chef there for a while. Um, Ranchwater Tavern back in those days. Um, and uh, 2015, I got the opportunity to move to Singapore, lived there for a couple of years and working in hotels and stuff and came back um, 17, 2017, right before Harvey with uh, the Oxbow project. Um, you know, and like you said, it's a, one of those what if situations um, and uh, kind of came out of that and found my way at Ibiza. And uh, it was a great relationship pretty quick, um, almost immediately with Charles, you know, kind of like the same kind of food. We're not too fussy with it. Um, some way more into the preparation and the details and making sure things are right that way. Um, keeping it light and fresh, you know, and then after about a year at Ibiza, they, uh, they asked me to move over to Brasserie. And so I was here for a while. Um, and then when pandemic started, it was a, it was a whole new ball game. You know, we, uh, we cut the menu down significantly um, just to survive. And then kind of slowly, we've been growing everything back from scratch. Like anytime um, we had the menu, we expanded the menu throughout the past year and a half, you know, we relooked at every recipe and kind of started from scratch on stuff. And so, you know, I think we've reemphasized a lot of the quality. Um, and, uh, you know, now we're at a stage where we can just evolve a little bit more. And, 
have more say in what we want to do with it. Yeah, Charles, I mean, talk about working with Michael and maybe getting, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be pejorative. Like if I say getting B19 back on track, that sounds like maybe it lost no, no, no. a little bit, but no, no, not at all. Not at all. But I mean, from your perspective, I mean, what does Michael bring to the table and, and what's it like working with him? Well, I think it's a, it's a good balance because I, at Ibiza, I worried about, the, it's an open kitchen. I worried about the dining room and I go out into the dining room. I go out into the parking lot to, to at the valet, hey, you, you park this guy's car over here. I would do little bitty things like that. With Michael, I trust him in the kitchen now, and I'm free to be in the front of the house. Because remember, I started as a waiter, and I waited tables 12 years. So I'm very comfortable in the front of the house, and I, I'm very comfortable, you know, pulling napkins. I'm, uh, uh, you know, filling water glasses, doing the little bitty details. And it's funny. I, I've heard from probably 100 people over the last month just when I, you know, bend over to pick up a piece of paper off the ground or, I fill an iced tea glass or open a bottle of wine. They go, wow, I can't believe you're doing this. You're the owner. And I'm like, man, that's, that's why I am the owner. And, you know, I, I love doing this. So I think, I think being, having Michael in the kitchen, it, it, it just gives me a peace of mind knowing that he's going to be there and, uh, and, you know, make sure the food comes out consistent. And I watch every plate and a lot of plates. I mean, very, very few plates come back. If something comes back, it's a steak that's usually undercooked because I really preach to him, man, you can always cook steak more if it's undercooked, but if it's overcooked, you can't bring it back. So, uh, you know, those are, those are things that I look for in detail. And I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I trust Michael in the kitchen and it gives me time to make relationships and build a business in front of the house. Yeah. I mean, Michael, I mean, what's it, what's it been like now having Charles there as a day-to-day presence, like kind of keeping an eye on things? Um, well, you know, like, uh, it's, uh, it's been great, you know, because he's, he's really got a hold on the front and, um, you know, anytime I have an idea, it's, it's, it's like a, an immediate feedback, you know, um, all the specials we've been working on, it's like, Hey, let's do this. And then it's happening almost immediately, you know? And, uh, you know, he, he's got a great idea for detail. Like of all the chefs that I've worked for before, he's definitely like, you know, the way he treats his guests is, is pretty amazing. Um, and so for him to trust us, we've got a great team in the back, you know, to let us do our thing and just keep pumping out quality is, uh, is pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, Charles, what's it been like for you back out on the floor every day? You know, you said you kind of took a year off. I mean, just from, just from following you on, on social media, you know, you're, you're very assertive about kind of promoting what you're doing and safe to say that you're, maybe more excited than you have been in, in the last couple of years. It's funny you say that I am more excited. I'm, 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 I'm just, um, I feel better physically, actually, you know, uh, being in the front of the house, I get to dress up a little more. Um, and I, I try to teach the, the, all the employees to try and try to go through the whole day without using the word. No, like if a customer comes in and has no reservations, don't tell him no. We don't have a table for him. Say, let us make it work. Don't use the word no. So I, they kind of nicknamed me Superman in the kitchen. They go, oh, Superman's here because my rule is I can't make anything happen. You tell me I'll make anything happen. And like I had a tent top walk in and they didn't have reservations. And I go, give me a few minutes. I'll make it happen. And the hostess goes, we have no chairs. I go, I'm going to invent a tent top. So, of course, I, I brought in a table from outside, moved two tables. I invented a tent top that didn't exist. And they go, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I'm like, that's what you got to do in the dining room you got to just think outside the box. What can I do to make these people happy? And, you know, and 
And if you do anything, if you make an effort, the customer's already on your side. But when you tell them no, no one wants to hear no. So I try to make an effort to do the right thing, even from the very beginning. And uh, it's been a big difference. And the sales have increased, I want to say, about 12 to 13 percent since I've been there. And, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back. I, customers tell me it's because of me, but I don't want to be that guy. So, oh, I'm making a difference. I just go in there every day and make the difference. Like when I'm doing this Zoom call, I told all the managers, I'm in the back parking lot in my truck so I can hear really well on Bluetooth. But if you need anything, just come get me or just text me or whatever. I'll be in the back parking lot. So I just communicate a lot. And I really, it's at, at B19, it's all about the customer. You think about that River Oaks clientele, you know, they, they're not used to hearing no probably in any facet of their life. And so certainly not from a restaurant. I mean, maybe maybe what's one or two of the more unusual requests that you've uh, you've heard in the last uh, few weeks since you've you've been there every day? Um, I had a guy walk in. He was real cocky. He knew I can I can read people well. And I go, you have a reservation? He goes, no, like really mean. He goes, but I want one. I go, when? He goes, now. And I go, how many people in your party, sir? He goes, two. And I go, right this way. And I seated him and gave him the best behave one. He just. He broke into a smile because he, I guess he thought I was just a manager or something, but I just, I took care of him. And that was a, you know, guy, a guy that was looking for a, a little bit of an argument. Then I have a lady, she's in today. She's an old lady. She comes in and sits by herself at lunch and, and she's an old school lady. She's probably 90 and she cannot stand hats in a restaurant. And she freaks out. She sees a hat. She goes, see those guys. I go, it's a rodeo. She goes, those guys have cowboy hats on. She goes, they shouldn't have a damn hat on at a restaurant in a building. And I go, look, times have changed. I go, I'm not going to beat them up for not having hats. So I walked away. And sure enough, she made a beeline straight for those guys. They're in their 30s and she's 90. She's telling me, son of a gun, better take your hats off in this restaurant to be gentlemen. And they took their hats off for a couple of minutes and put them back on. But <laughs> B19, you see a lot of different things. Uh, request yesterday, I had 30 women come in the birthday party and they're all in their minks and all this man there's 30 of them and they sat down and one asked me can we all get separate checks (laughs) i go no i go i go no i said i can't do that i can do 30 equal payments if you if the bill's three thousand we divide it by 30 people you know it's all gonna be 100 bucks each and uh so i can do whatever you want in that direction um yeah i get some uh Odd requests. Like the other night, uh, there was a girl that's a little tipsy at the bar, and I overheard her say, I got to pick up my daughter on the way home. And I'm like, you're not driving. She goes, what do you mean? I go, I will have the valet take your car, and I have a Suburban I use for customers, a black Suburban I use as a shuttle. I will personally drive you home. I go right down to your address. So she writes down her address, and this is a Monday night at 8.45. I close at 9. I'm already tired. She, she gives me the address, and it's Clear Lake. And I'm like, oh, my God, Clear Lake. So I put her in the Suburban, and I have the valet. I give the valet the address. I said, deliver this car to her home right now, and I'll be there probably five or ten minutes behind you. I've got to pick up her daughter. So I drive her to Clear Lake. I drive to pick up her daughter, and I tell her daughter, your mom's car was not working right. So we don't feel safe for driving by ourselves. So I'm taking her home, and I'm, you know, jump in, and I'll drop you all off. So I walked them through the door. They made it safe home. And the valet driver and I drove all the way back to the restaurant, got back about 1045 at night. But uh, that's just little things. And she's been back three or four days a week since then. And she thanked me a hundred times. And, you know, it all worked out good. 
Yeah, that's that's incredible. That that is a very Brasserie 19 story. Michael, I mean, what are, what do you get? Or yeah, I mean, like like what are some of the what are some of the customer interactions you've had, or anything particularly memorable recently with people making unusual requests? I mean, I, you're you're basically set up not to, as Charles was saying, you you really can't tell anybody no. Oh yeah, there's there's all kind. You know, Brasserie's a it's a lot of different things to a lot of different kinds of people. So we do our best to you know accommodate whatever the, we can tell the bechamel story tell them the bechamel story yesterday oh yeah you know like i guess in our old men you know on the old menu we had croque madames croque masseurs on the menu we're not doing them right now maybe bringing them back um when we do our lunch menu in a couple of weeks but um you know they wanted a croque madame we didn't have bechamel ready we kind of did it on the fly for them um and then of course they they didn't even want a real croque madame they wanted with regular bacon on the inside and all this other stuff but i mean it's it's like that you know we still get our um Caesar salad, no croutons, dressing on the side, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and whatever we need to do to accommodate them, we do it. You know, if we make a tartar sauce for some guy that wants it with his trout, we'll do it. As long as we have the means to do it, it's uh, it's up to us, to, you know, to make them happy. You know, hamburgers, no burger um, <laughs> type of stuff. But what what is a hamburger? It's just like a bun with lettuce and tomato and cheese. Exactly. Yeah. Like you know, <laughs> it's like a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> there, there's a Nothing, nothing surprises us anymore when we read the ticket machine and some of the stuff that comes out on it, um, people, you know, but uh, that's what we do. And that's, you know, we do it to the best of our ability. And hopefully, like, that's why they keep coming back, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, Charles, I know you guys are working on a new menu. It's rolling out real soon. What are, what are some of the dishes you're or or maybe maybe let me let me back up just a second. How did you kind of conceive of the new menu and, and what are like, what was the the idea behind it I, when i think new menus i just you know i, I go online and i go uh, i put in uh, parisian uh, brasseries and i just look at some like brasserie lip in paris i look at some of the old brasseries and i just i, I dissect their menus and then i'll go to uh menus in new york like lafayette brasserie belvazar um uh, raul's on french street i'll look at some of their menus and i'll just take things and and say you know what i like like sweetbreads this one i said michael i love calvados with sweetbreads why don't you just play with that in your head for a while so he came up with a uh, i did he did sweetbreads that with, with a calvados mustard he made with it with uh what i think is you put lardons in there he says yeah there's some lardons bacon lardons uh granny smith apples and some red endive as well in that dish yeah yeah i just like the idea of uh, apple anything apple with sweetbreads especially a brandy and uh so that's a new menu item um He's doing a crudo. We, I really love crudo. I call it skinny food. All the, it's almost like sushi. All the, all you know, ladies love eating crudo because it's kind of guilt free. You know, there's no potatoes with it or anything like that. So that's where Michael really comes in. He, he puts together really good raw, raw dishes. This crudo has uh, salted uh, cucumber, Persian cucumber with it, and uh, that's a dish I'm uh, excited about. And um, there's a, also a, you know, an old school dish. I mean. Uh, He's doing a pork chop, a sous vide pork chop. You know, I know a lot of people don't like putting pork chops on the menu. They're kind of an 80s, 90s things. But he's making it his own and doing it uh, a different way and uh, with the sous vide. So it comes out perfect every time. And the, and the cook time won't be 30 minutes like it was at Ibiza because I would cook a pork chop on the grill from raw stage. You know, it's a 25-minute cook time to get it white all the way through. So th- those are a couple of ideas that um, I threw at him, and he came back, and he's doing real well with it. Yeah, Michael, uh, maybe maybe talk about a couple of your favorite dishes that you're uh, getting ready to roll out here. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the, like you mentioned the crudo, um, you know, when we, when we went down and pared the menu down, it gave us the opportunity to start doing specials, which we didn't really do in the past at Brasserie. So a lot of these things are just, um, things that really worked and stuck with us. And we've had it, you know, you know, in the past couple of months, we've done different variations of all these dishes, like, you know, the roasted duck breast, it's got this sauce of roasted apple or not apple, excuse me, uh, grapes and olives. We just, um, really char the olives and grapes really well with some port wine. And so it's like this compote that comes out with it. It's really nice. Um, we're going to do a meatball dish, some uh, pork and pork and uh, beef and pork meatball with some stewed chickpeas and peppers. Um, and then a really zippy yogurt that's got a lot of horseradish in it. And um, yeah. And then some scallops, you know, people have been asking for scallops. Anytime we have another special, we always sell out, you know, it's been, one of the mainstays on all the old menus here. And so we've got a really nice spring, like a green gazpacho with it, some smoked almonds, some charred chipotle onions, just a nice garnish with it. Everything's pretty light, you know, like some of these dishes, um, we're, we're just trying to make it a little more vibrant and uh, see where it goes. That's our thing, uh, Eric. When we do menus, man, when Michael does the menu, it's almost like pulling your hair out because we're not one of those ego, ego, ego chefs, you know, where, my my food is my art. It's a reflection of myself. I don't think of that. I'm thinking I want to be able to give myself a bonus at Christmas time or when they come up with a good food cost. And when our customers come in, and don't get me wrong, you know, a lot of sh a lot of shelves will laugh at scallops. Oh, let's have the seared scallops. They'll make fun of that, you know. But if you take something that's super fresh and you do it good and, and do it simple and don't reinvent the wheel, it's going to be good. But I know what chefs think, you know, they, they wanted like, I don't want to mention the restaurants, but they want an expression of themselves and be so out there that they just stand alone and all about themselves and no one's doing what they're doing. But, you know, I've got people that wash dishes, that bus tables, that have families, three or four kids. And I have, Michael, we have to make a living at the restaurant. We have to feed these families. They have to to make an hourly wage where they can, you know, take care of their families. So we, I think of all that when I, when, when we roll out a concept or a new menu, it's got to work. I want to fill up that restaurant. So everybody from the dishwasher to the general manager can get a paycheck on a consistent basis and take care of their family. So all that goes into the thought, you know, if that, if that gives you any kind of insight. No, absolutely. And, and then let me just ask you about kind of the, the front of the house. I mean, you know, B19 has always been known for its its wine list. Are, are you putting your spin on that? Or, or is there a sommelier on board or, or kind of how, how's that, how's that side of the, the restaurant? I, going? I'm definitely putting, I'm definitely putting my spin on it. Uh, I have a, actually on the last page it's, ca it's called Charles's funky selection. So I'm bringing in, uh, you know, I used to live in Spain, so I'm bringing in some beautiful Riojas. Uh, I think Riojas go with French food very well, very well. Um, um, you know, I've got some highly allocated wines. I just got some beautiful hillside select from Schaefer, Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, Sandy, uh, uh, my manager, Erica, the new GM, Culp, uh, Erica Culp, and the three of us taste weekly, sometimes twice a week. But yes, I'm looking at, uh, uh, I just put on some beautiful Pinot Noir wines from the Alsace, Alsace region of France which you never see on wine list. You never see uh, Alsatian Pinot Noir. You usually say, see the Pinot Blanc, the Griesling, the white wines. But I love the Alsatian Pinot. And um, I just try to put on really 
funky stuff that most people wouldn't see. But then again, I put on stuff that people will love, like Margot. I've got a, I got a Chabot Blanc. I got Margot. I've got some of the old school wines that are like 98 point wines that people will buy for six, seven, a thousand. You know, I've got wines at four thousand dollars a bottle. But uh, also, I brought on something really fun. I brought on a 15 liters, some 15 liters of uh, of uh, Provence Rosé, which uh, I'm trying to sell at brunch on Saturday or Sunday. If I get a table of 20 people, 20, 23 people, I can probably sell a 15 liter. There's almost two cases in a 15 liter of uh, rosé. It's the biggest bottle in the world that they make. Is that a? I, I know there's all these fun wine wine terms like these biblical names for these. Yeah, these this big is bottles. A, 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 it's not the Methuselah. It's the big. It's the biggest one. It's uh, the. Is that uh, a Nebuchadnezzar? That's it, Nebuchadnezzar. That's the biggest one they make. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I have Nebuchadnezzars and that I got in, and uh, you know they're not crazy. A Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I'm selling it fifteen hundred bucks a bottle. That's not it. That's when you divide it by the 20 bottles that are in it it's not bad at all can you lift it like how does that work yeah i can lift it, it it's about it's about 60 pounds 70 pounds but it's heavy but it's it's awkward but i i like going to st bartolot and on nikki beach i learned how to pour these wines because what they do a lot of people at nikki beach order big formats of wine so what you do is you pull the cork out and uh you grab the wine and you put it on your shoulder, you know, and you, and you have your, 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 your left hand on the neck of the bottle and you, you have it at a slight 45 degree angle and you grab the glass in your right hand and you pull it down slowly and you, it's like a balance act on your shoulder and that's how you pour the wine and you, and you fill all the wine glasses. Actually, uh, I'll send you a video. I did it last Sunday with a six liter and uh, I'll send you the video. Yeah, I'd like to. I I definitely would like to see that. Uh, yeah, and if you if you put it on uh, you put it on social media, we'll share it on a. Well, at least I'll share it on my feed along with this uh, this podcast, so be people, great so people can see you do that. Um, you know, obviously, you you talked about sort of Grant's plans for the future, and that he's you know he's about to open Flora, and he's got some ambitions to go to other cities. What about? I mean, what about your future plans? I mean, are you are are you one and done with with brasserie or do you think do you have other ideas in mind you know i i want to do a smaller restaurant and I, all my customers are asking for a, a bar a lounge something where they can go like after brunch around four o'clock hey you know we just had a long brunch god we there's a cool barbecue go to so i've been talking to the landlords uh that built you know the driscoll next door to us and uh you know it's the same landlord and I'm looking for a couple thousand suites for uh, something called Bar 19, and it would be a private club. That way, I could control who comes in and you know the crowd that I want, and it would be membership only. And that's something I have in mind. I would pull the trigger on tomorrow if I could find, but it has to be walking distance from B19. And I'm looking at upstairs. Uh, there's office space upstairs. Uh, maybe I could convert to a little lounge. No, I, you know, it, it wouldn't be a huge money maker. It would just be more like a you know, an amenity for, uh, for our customers, but I think it would be fun. Tillman has a lot of fun with his at, at the post. He has one called the Oak room and, uh, it seems like it's doing really well, but, uh, I really like to do another restaurant, a small restaurant, probably 80 seats, 70 seats and, uh, you know, partner up with someone, uh, a chef and, uh, could be Michael, just someone that where they're an owner too. And, uh, and maybe do something, but not a lot. I want to do maybe two, maybe 
three more concepts at the most, two, two or three. Michael, how about you? I mean, what, what does your future hold? Do you, do you see yourself at, at Brasserie for the long haul? Do you, do you have uh, thoughts about uh, another concept you'd like to get involved in? Oh, um, well, you know, I think, uh, of course, Brasserie right now, this is just the beginning for, for what we're doing here. And, um, you know, as long as we can keep going with this and if, if opportunities pop up with Charles, that'd be awesome. You know, um, it's, uh, you know, Brad, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to express myself as Charles is saying, but you know, like there's other venues where we can explore all kinds of different kinds of foods that maybe wouldn't be able to do here at B19 so well. Um, you know, smaller kinds of concepts like he was talking about, you know. We're going to Paris uh, in September, Michael and I, we're going to go on a, probably a six day eating trip, eating and drinking. I want him to really immerse himself into brasseries and other French restaurants in Paris and, uh, so we're looking forward to that, and uh, we'll probably go second week of September. And uh, so um, neither one of us have been to Paris in the last 20, 25 years. So I think that'll be a fun time. So you set it on record, right? You got that, right? We're yeah, going. yeah, yeah. That's that's permanent. Yeah, he, 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 <laughs> it's he owes official. that trip to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and Charles, let me just ask you about one other thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. But, you know, I, I can't help but notice that there's a lot of changes part of the world. I mean – you know, Chris Shepard, your old, your, your uh, former employee at Catalan is opening two new places up the block from you at Dunleavy in West Dallas. You know, Ben Berg's coming in at uh, Shepard and Allen Parkway with a, a restaurant that, that sounds a lot to me like uh, his, maybe his version of Brasserie 19. Do you worry about that or, or do you, or kind of what is your assessment of, of the state of uh, Dining River Oaks at a time when it just seems like there's all this new construction going on right around you? You know, I, I, you know, I've over the years, uh, even when I had a visa back in the day, you know, I, I thought about restaurants opening and you go, oh my God, I got to change my menu. Well, I got to update this. I got to do this. And I've always heard from people. I've read stories about Danny Meyer, Wolfgang Puck and all these guys, you know, great, great chefs, great entrepreneurs. And the, the common advice that I take away from all of it is if you put your head down and keep doing what you're doing. Don't try to deviate, change what you're doing to compete or anything. Do what you do. I mean, look at uh, Javier's in Dallas. It's been around for 50 years. It's in its classic, you know, Mexico City steakhouse style. I don't know if you know Javier's. It's one of my favorite in Dallas. Uh, uh, Bill Bouquet in New York, you know, they do what they do. They don't, they don't try to compete with anybody else. There's places like uh, Cipriani in New York I love. And that's a very competitive city, but they stick to what they know and what they do. And, and I think if Brasserie, you know, especially now with me in front of the house, I am shaking every hand and all the other, we don't really share those customers that much. I mean, I have a very loyal clientele at, uh, at uh, B19, but not only are they building, you know, behind me, there's Hudson House going in right next to me. I mean, 15 feet from my door. And you know, right. I'm not really happy. I'm not happy about that because hell, they got a steak print on their menu. They got oysters. You know, I think the landlord made a you know a shitty move when he put them in there. And you can print, you know, you can print that too if you want. But uh, I'm not happy about that. And uh, you know, I got a, a restaurant going across the street, the Omastral guys, and you know, they're French. They're both of them are French. And guess what their concept is? Oh, it's cosmopolitan. I mean, it's continental. Continental. I haven't heard that term in a long time. So I think, you know, they just put a Band-Aid over French to make it, make it look like, oh, we're doing Continental, it's not French. I think that's crap. And uh, I'm an Italian restaurant going 
next to me from the woodlands and but they're italian you know but you know still a grill is italian i just don't think that makes sense to put in two italian restaurants and, and three french restaurants within 100 yards of each other so anyway i got my work cut out for me and uh, that's why michael and i are gonna you know bust out with a new menu and and make the wine list fresh i've been i've changed out the brand new carpet i built brand new banquettes all around the restaurant i'm going to change the, uh, both bathrooms if i can figure out how to do that without closing because i really don't want to lose the revenue for three or four days to to redo a bathroom so i've got a you know i, I wanted to i really want to freshen up the interior uh of a, a b19 i'm about 80 percent there well good i mean i i had completely you know hudson house slipped my mind but yeah that, that does seem like a, a very you know uh they've got a burger and a steak frites and, and seafood towers it sounds sounds very familiar to me yeah yeah i mean yeah go go figure i mean it's stupid but you know you've got you've got uh more than 10 years of making people happy so i i, I like your odds yeah well i appreciate it thank you <laughs> all right uh well before i let you guys go we have to play the lightning round five easy questions five short answers just say the first thing that comes to mind michael i'll start with you what is your favorite ingredient? Favorite ingredient? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, <laughs> the, the simplest answer is garlic because it goes in everything. But as far as like, I, I think I love mussels. Like, I, I don't know. I love mussels. All right. Charles, how about you? Oh, my favorite ingredient? Uh, salt. Michael, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? First band, uh, the Beach Boys. It was a concert that was in Chicago and the Beach Boys at the Woodlands. Charles, how about you? Loretta Lane, Conway Twitty. All right. Michael, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Past or present? Hakeem. Charles? Dan Pastorini, Hansville. <laughs> Michael, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive through um, I, I probably go to Raisin Cane's more than I'd like to admit after I get out of work here. <laughs> Charles, how about you? Oh, it's so easy. Chick-fil-A uh, sandwich with a, a root beer and those tries and two buffalo sauce. All right. And then finally, Michael, what is the new restaurant that you haven't been to yet that you are dying to try? Um, I want to go try a uh, Trattoria Sofia over there in the Heights. It's a good answer. Uh, Charles, how about you? What, what's on your radar? I'd like to see March. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, why don't you give me the, the website and the social media and all that for Brasserie 19? Go for it, Michael. Uh, yeah, uh, Brasserie19.com. Um, and then our all our social media handles, Instagram is at Brasserie19 and um, Facebook as well. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the interview. Thanks a lot, Eric. Great to see you. You follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.